You're listening to the Uncommon Living Podcast, where we discuss nutrition sciences, behavior, deep wellness, regulation, and what it takes to be the very best version of you. I'm your host, Erin Murray, a nutrition expert, food behavior clinician, research assistant, and founder of Nourish. Here, we will use science and evidence-based tools, as well as life experience from myself, case studies, and guests to share tools and ideas for how to live with uncommon optimization. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Uncommon Living. At our last hour together, we were looking at the idea of what does it mean to eat? And we were asking that question so that we had a bit of a pathway to start examining nutrition and nutrition science through a new lens, really building a new framework for these things that we're talking about. And today we're going to build on that by zooming in on one of the concepts that I shared last week, which is why today's episode is all about food culture and the anthropology of eating and what that means for your health. So when we first looked at that question of what does it mean to eat, it brought up this concept that there's a biopsychosocial science at play when we're looking at nutrition. It's not just a food science. And hopefully last week's episode made that feel clear and like there's a strong foundation there so that you can continue with this journey looking at this topic in a whole new way. Because when we look at that constellation around what's really driving our food intake and what it means to eat, one of the stars in that constellation, so to speak, or a spoke in that wheel is food culture. And I glossed over it at our last episode, but today I want to zoom in on it and really make a lot of sense out of it because there's a lot going on there on a macro level, as well as on a micro level. And I can promise you that because you are a modern human being, it is affecting your food intake. So this is very much a concept that's real living, breathing, and acting upon you right now. So when we think of food culture, a lot of ideas can come to mind. We might think of cuisine, Uh, Many of us might start thinking of places that we have visited that had really wonderful food. Perhaps you've been to parts of the Mediterranean, like Italy or France or Spain or Greece, where there's very famous food cultures, um, as well as parts of the globe, really all over the world, parts of Asia or South America, anywhere you've visited that maybe really resonated with you as having a strong sense of cuisine, or perhaps you've traveled and even noticed that the way everybody acted around food is really different. There's some work looking at the blue zones, which are the areas of the world where they have a high percentage of their population living to be 100 or more years old. Um, So people who live a century. And when we look at the blue zones, the theme across all of them is that they have really strong food cultures. And when we dive into that, it's not just what they eat, but it's really how they interact with food, how they socialize around food, how they grow food, certainly how they prepare food. And this can be quite noticeable when we travel. Um, When I think of food culture, one of the things freshest in my mind 
was when I went to Brazil last year for um, a wedding in my family. My sister-in-law is from Brazil and their food culture was so beautiful and so noticeably different than the one that I know here in New England. Um, just not only the food itself was quite different, but the language around food. One of my favorite things as a total coffee junkie was that when I was in Brazil, I really loved the way all the little cafes and coffee shops didn't even have to-go cups in the shop. You had to get a little coffee and this really cute little um, ceramic dish, like a, a real coffee mug, and you had to sit down and drink it. <laughs> and I loved that. And it was really noticeable to me that to-go culture was not present, at least from what I saw there. And the two weeks I spent there in the regions that I went to, there was no to-go culture. So a lot of those ideas might come to mind. And we're going to figure out what our food culture here looks like and why that matters so much. And this is a huge part of my work with my clients. And one of the hurdles of this content, for example, talking about food culture, is that on social media, it's almost impossible to dive into this more fully. So I've always had a little bit of a hard time posting because there's um, some demands of nuance and, and detail when we look at these things. So I'm really happy to finally have um, more of an open, longer content forum to talk about this with you. Um, as with many things at, in our science, it, it, they don't always translate well to really small sound bites or, or small captions. So let's first pull back and come to that 10,000 foot view, which is to say, why would food culture matter, which we started uh, describing in the last episode, and how does that matter for me? So let's look at this first. Human beings are extremely social eaters. We share food as a social construct. It's a part of how we relate to one another. It's a part of how we regulate our nervous systems. It's definitely a part of how we survive. Certainly the food intake and the calories is a way that we survive, but the sharing of food is also a way that we survive. And the, the use of that and how we grow up around that then creates us as adults who have comfort or discomfort around food, or we might have habits like ordering out or cooking at home. And it also develops and great, greatly influences the development of our palate and our taste preferences. And if we think about what food culture is and what that means to us, we can think about how we might like to build our own food culture. And this is one of the reasons I focus on food culture for my clients, because we want to create a wonderful food culture for them. Because remember, that dieting framework doesn't quite fit because the diet framework is using the food science framework that we talked about in our last episode. And what we really want to focus on is this biopsychosocial science of nutrition. And that's where food culture comes in because from the dawn of our evolution, we have really developed a relationship with food that has social and communal constructs inside of it. So to zoom out at this 10,000 foot view fully, we have to first look at the anthropology of food culture. So in case you're wondering, anthropology is the study of humanity. So that's where we look at where biology and history and language and development and human development are all assessed in terms of the past and the present. 
So when we want to assess something like food culture, we can think of it as the anthropology of eating. What's our biology and history of eating and development of eating um, and in the past as well as the present. And we know that there's thousands of food cultures around the globe that they span all continents and specific regions within each continent. And they're greatly influenced by geography and generational teaching and food sharing, recipes, stories, techniques, certainly the local eating and, and what grows there in seasonality. All of that fuels the food culture around the world. And we know that the anthropology of that would be to say, where did this begin and how far back does this go? And basically, what does it mean? And how am I interacting it with it now? Um, when I think of food culture, I always think of my, my grandma is from Ireland. She's actually 94 years old. And when she talks about how old she is, she has this funny saying where she says, I'm as old as the hills. And I, when I think of eating, I think of eating is as old as the hills. And it really is in many different regards. So let's look at that. So anthropologists have several theories that may explain the emergence of language in our species. And there's quite a few theories on this. One of them is what's known as mate selection. And the other one is known as social cohesion. So basically creating tribes for safety, community, and, and things of that nature. And then there's another theory, and naturally you can see why this one's my favorite, is that food sharing actually precipitated the development of language as well as the need for hunting. And the reason what that theory is one of the most compelling and a lot of anthropologists do feel that our food and the way we use it and cultivate it or create it and share it is what fueled the development of human languages is because things like sharing require a way to communicate, as well as things like hunting or, or using a tool. What if you need to teach someone how to use a tool? Or hunting, for example, requires a very complex, coordinated effort, particularly as we evolve to then start hunting big game. So through, through our evolution, we may have first started with a lot of insects and, um, and fibers. So we certainly were eating a lot of plants. We are an arboreal species, so we're from the trees. And so we always had a lot of fibers and roughage in the diet, but then there also was insects and things of that nature. Then perhaps some small game as, as we evolve further and further. And then I'm really fast forwarding here through, <laughs> through millions of years, but no big deal. So we keep moving forward, forward, and then we come out of the trees. Then we start moving around uh, in much greater distances. And we eventually clearly started hunting bigger game. And that leap into hunting big game has an effect because big game can kill you. The squirrel isn't necessarily going to kill us. Hopefully not. Hopefully we'd have a little bit more skill to be killed by a squirrel. But by the time we're hunting very large game that also is a predator, for example, there's a serious threat posed to the hunter. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that in those, those years where, where that pattern of um, hunting was developed, there had to have been a tremendous amount of social cohesion and literally teamwork to hunt very, very large dangerous game. 
And you can imagine if you're doing something in such a large coordinated kind of complex effort, you got to be able to communicate, right? So we see the dawn of communication most likely in many of those scenarios. And then to hunt, we definitely had to develop tools related to hunting. But then we also have to be able to share tools or maybe leave tools to an offspring, maybe leaving tools through generations. And tools require instructions. So we begin at some point here, no doubt, to we're hunting big game, we're working in groups, we're definitely traveling in tribes, hunting together and sharing tools for the betterment of the group. So I just always find that fascinating, fascinating that food in many regards at least helped fuel the development of language, if not generated the need for language entirely. So we know language and food go closely together and the social cohesion required to get food and share it undoubtedly goes all the, all the way back to the dawn of culture. And that's why we care about food culture, because when I look at someone now in 2022, they're still a product of food culture. All of your organ systems and the way you feel around food and the way you feel around your body and the taste preferences that are hardwired into your palate and brain and all the hormones that speak to your brain to regulate your food intake, for example, are steeped in this rich history of food culture. So we, we know it's related to the development of language and sharing and social cohesion. And then what starts to happen after that? Remember, we're fast forwarding <laughs> millions of years at a time here, but bear with me. So if we look at what happens next, we have to look at, well, now we have food, say we have some ingredients, and eventually we have fire and we start cooking. There's a rich history um, that I won't go into today about certainly the development of language, which I'm not an expert in. So we're not going down that road fully, but also cooking and fire and the development of tools are massive areas of research that I'm not doing full justice to, but I'm pulling together kind of loosely today for us um, for the sake of, of diving into to our concept of food culture. But we know that our human ancestors began cooking approximately 1.8 million years ago. And the interesting thing about cooking, I feel there's ample evidence to demonstrate that it really changed us forever. Because what happened when we started cooking is we outsourced digestion. Because remember when we eat food, there's this huge concert of events that has to incur for us to break that substrate down and absorb it and transfer that fuel into our cells. This is a big process, many, many, many hours, even today, modern day, many, many, many hours for food to be passing through the GI. We know even food can, can be in the GI for more than 24 hours. Um, so depending on what we've eaten and how we're digesting it, but nonetheless, huge process, right? So eventually when we start cooking food, we are in a sense pre-digesting them we are outsourcing digestion to fire, for example. And when we started turning that corner in our evolution, we started seeing offspring that were probably thriving much more than previous offspring 
as they were being fed cooked foods. And this is where we see kind of, well, we see certainly fire, but also pounding and heating and slicing probably with some various tools that we had. And then when we ingest that pre-digested food, our GI spends less energy breaking it down and it's absorbing more than if the food were raw. And we start extracting more fuel for our brains and bodies. So cooking things over a fire helped humans start consuming far larger volumes of nutrients because they didn't have to spend all day chewing. If you've ever seen, uh, if you've ever seen videos or if you've been to uh, a facility that has other primates like gorillas or chimpanzees in it, you'll probably notice they're chewing on things all day, right? They're kind of gnawing on different types of vegetation and insects and things of that nature, but they're very large bodies and they are chewing all day. And what we have done with cooking and fire and eventually cuisine is we've outsourced some of our digestion. So we are getting huge volumes of nutrition in shorter amounts of time. And when we start using that tool, we undoubtedly started benefiting in a way that promoted the use of that tool further. And when we see that, especially when we think of as a species, if we see our offspring thriving, maybe healing faster, um, getting smarter, thriving more, surviving uh, under threat more successfully because of these huge waves and huge doses of nutrition that they're receiving, we're going to keep that tool around, right? So fast forward some more, there's thousands of years in here with development of hunting and gathering across multiple species. Um, it's an area of interest of mine, but definitely not my expertise to look at human evolution specifically. But I always think it's so interesting if, if we look back in a sense on this family tree, so to speak, we know that there were probably periods of time where there were multiple different types of primates related to modern humans, but separate species living at the same time. And I just always think how kind of freaky, but fascinating that is like five different versions of a bipedal ape walking around uh, bipedal meaning on two feet. It's just so interesting. And, and they were all over the globe at, at some parts. It's just amazing. So we start seeing that use of fire and tools and sharing. We've got some language developing here and fast forward, and we can start looking at at least hunter gatherer culture. And we know that hunter gatherer culture seems to have developed among the early hominins of Africa. So bipedal primates with evidence of their activity dating as far back as about 2 million years ago. And this is where we see hunting meat rather than waiting to find it. For example, so when we look at these hunter gatherers, we see the dawn of seeking proteins uh, rather than just looking for small insects and also picking and storing some vegetables and fruits. And, and I imagine any vegetation that was edible that they could get their hands on. And the culture accelerated with the appearance of what's called Homo erectus, which we see appear a to, to the fossils that we have to date about 1.9 million years ago. And the really interesting thing about Homo erectus is he emerged with a much larger brain and a shorter digestive system, which is kind of reflecting the increased consumption of meat and a 
differentiation in how vegetation is consumed. And interestingly, these are also the first of our ancestors built for long distance walking. So this is most likely where we pushed a lot of tribes into Asia and Europe and started spreading out of Africa. But just to look at the GI tract, uh, I find this so fascinating, so I can't help myself. Um, I hope my fellow science nerds uh, out there are enjoying this as well. But for example, we often see a nutrition argument, um, and this is just an example of an argument that not to pick on it because I don't want to pick on food groups here on this show, but I do want to be clear about science. So we often see things like skip the cow, just eat the grass. And there's many reasons why that's physiologically impossible. And here's one of them. A cow, for example, is a ruminant. So are things like deer and elk and some other uh, animals of that nature, they're ruminants. And they have a compartment in their GI tract called a rumen. And the rumen is the first compartment of their GI tract. And they have a large microbiome in the rumen that allow them to very slowly over a long period of time digest grass and get nutrition out of it. So that's the first compartment of a cow's GI tract. They have a rumen. That's why they're a ruminant. Interestingly, when we look at our evolution, especially if we look at Homo erectus, for example, what's our first compartment in the GI tract? I lightly skimmed over this last episode. So bonus points if you can recall this, but if not, I'm going to give it to you anyways. Our first compartment, we have the mouth and the esophagus, and then we get to the stomach. And the stomach secretes hydrochloric acid and digestive enzymes. We don't have a large microbiome of fermenting microbes in the stomach. Our area where we see a a large concentration of our, our microbiota is in our last compartment of our GI tract, which is the colon or the large intestine. So our food travels through mouth esophagus and then first compartment is stomach and then it drips into small intestine. And then those remnants drip into those remnants and fibers and solids drip into the large intestine where we see our microbiome for all intensive purposes. So our last compartment is a fermenting compartment, basically fermenting what's left over. That's why we can't eat grass. And if we eat it, we die. We don't have the symbiotic species in our first compartment to break down grasses for us. We can eat some vegetation, but we can't eat grass like a cow. And it's because a cow has a rumen and it's the first compartment in their GI tract. So this is a huge misunderstanding that you'll see all over social media. Skip the cow, just eat the grass. And that is based in more of a emotional concept than a physiologic concept. So we just want to be careful there when we recommend things to people about nutrition or when we see these things all over our social media, I do want to offer you here in my community and audience members to be a little suspicious of things when we see stuff, because a lot of these types of posts and many others, especially including many other food camps as well, um, diet camps, 
a lot of that is not founded in any accurate physiology. So the emergence of Homo erectus with this shorter GI tract and a more acidic stomach and the colon and the area where we can ferment fibers is the last compartment of the GI is reflecting the increased consumption of meat that our ancestors were undoubtedly involved in. And as I mentioned, if we start pre-digesting proteins, we don't have to digest all day either because fire, our friend, is pre-digesting for us. It's doing some of the work. We've outsourced our digestive labor in many senses. And then that's also giving us massive doses of nutrition. So I just love the way that food and the way we used it and the way we used it together influenced our physiology essentially in real time for all intensive purposes. Our food was changing us as much as we were changing our food. And I, I think that's such a beautiful relationship. And it always, in science, we always say that structure dictates function. For example, when we look at an enzyme and the shape of the enzyme and the way it can interact with its substrates, the structure dictates functions. We look at cells the same way. We can look at our whole body that way. Structure dictates function. And there's this really elegant relationship between the way we're built and the way we're designed to function. And when we look at that story, I think we make a whole lot of sense. And we can look at this throughout our whole body. The things that we do and the way we're programmed and the way we function and the structures we have make an awful lot of sense. So I just love that. I think it's so interesting. So here we have Homo erectus 1.9 million years ago emerging with this larger brain, this shorter digestive system. It's reflecting an increased consumption of meat. And then we also start traveling long distances and we push out of one continent and we start spreading out amongst all of them. And through these many thousands of years, the use of water and fire kept becoming more and more sophisticated, and it gave rise to methods of cooking, as well as more tool development and more traveling. We, and especially with cooking and fire, we then can move into colder climates and we can spread out around the globe. Now I'm gonna do an extra fast, fast forward. Fast forward thousands more years, and we then see the dawn of agriculture as populations boomed, and our more modern ancestors settled into one place, and we see that hunter-gatherer culture subside, and about 12,000 years ago or so, we see the agricultural revolution. So we've talked about now how food culture is related to the way we evolved, and it undoubtedly gave rise to language. And it also started dictating our structure and function. And there's some really neat research about this. So one, and one of the things I like thinking about this is because it, we have such a different relationship with food than other animals. We have these really big brains fueled by the massive amounts of food that we eat. And we can eat food way more quickly than, than our primate um, relatives. One of the things that we have that's so significant is these larger brains. And that's actually related to the development of our GI tract. Um, one thing that is, is kind of interesting is where we see the emergence of Homo erectus, what came before him is a species known as Australopithecus. And they had three times smaller volume brains 
than Homo sapiens. So Homo erectus is one of our ancestors. And as we keep evolving today, we're, we're modern Homo sapiens. And we just have these massively large brains and these shorter GI tracts. And here's kind of some interesting research about that that I'll share quickly. There is a researcher at Harvard. She's an evolutionary biologist named Rachel Carmody. And she wanted to look at this evolutionary jump. So why did Australopithecus have this smaller brain, this longer GI tract, and then we see this leap into Homo erectus with this bigger brain and the shorter GI tract? So what she started investigating was, how did we grow very suddenly, essentially? And here's what she did. So she had some experiments with mice, and she fed the mice lean beef and sweet potato in four different forms, raw and whole raw and pounded, and then cooked and whole, or cooked and pounded. And she chose beef and sweet potatoes because she wanted to kind of mimic the meat and tubers that our more ancient ancestors would have eaten. And mice aren't particularly good at digesting this type of food. It's not their usual diet. So in the study, they did expect them to lose weight, but they also expected the cooked version to perhaps provide more calories. And sure enough, in the research, the mice on the raw diet lost weight. And when the food was cooked, though, they had no trouble maintaining their body mass. Pounding made a slight difference, but not much. But the cooked foods in total, cooked and pounded, were the most digested and provided the most calories. And interestingly, though, these these study findings do track with the fact that when we research humans, modern humans today here, who eat a completely raw diet, they, just like the mice in this study, demonstrate typically to have trouble maintaining their body weight over time. So I just think this is so fascinating because we're seeing here the way our physiology really is dependent on preparing food a certain way which says so much about how long we've been doing this and how far this goes back. We have these big brains that got so smart and developed um, so quickly in some senses with these huge doses of nutrition that help us move more, think more, and get far more nutrition far more quickly. That's why we require a lot of food and we also require cooking. We're a species who cooks. And the interesting thing about cooking is A few big things happen when we bring cooking into our picture. Cooking changes food and its chemical and physical structure. So we very much literally alter proteins when we are heating something, for example. Cooking also changes the energy needs that our body must spend digesting it because it's pre-digested. So now we get more calories and don't have to burn as many to get them, if that makes sense and changes in where the food is absorbed in the digestive tract are also found when we're cooking food, as I mentioned. And then lastly, cooking food definitely changes our microbiota. So those bacterial species, um, yeasts, fungi, even viruses, um, and all their metabolites and their genetic material are in our colon. They're through the whole GI tract, but in small, much, much, much smaller amounts in the other compartments. So when we talk about the microbiome, we're really referring to the colon, the large intestine. And our large intestine is influenced by the fact that we've been cooking for probably millions of years almost. 
And that's why we see the colon at the end of the GI tract where it is fermenting the remnants um, of the fibers and the solids that we ate. And we have this really interesting stomach at the beginning of the GI tract where we're secreting, where we are secreting hydrochloric acid and digestive enzymes. Um, we won't take a deeper dive into the GI tract. That's all for today, but I just wanted to show, and I, I feel like many of these components of our evolution can't be emphasized enough because we need to understand where we come from and what it means, because that's influencing us right now. That's influencing the way you're digesting your lunch right now. Uh, if you ate uh, recently, what we're talking about right now is happening inside of you as we speak. How amazing is that? And this leap in our evolution is where sharing and preparing became an essential part of what makes us human. And this is in our food life today. And importantly, we also want to think about the way this developed our taste preferences, because this is absolutely also at work as we speak right now. So when we look at the way we prefer food and develop taste preferences, we definitely have unique taste preferences across the spectrum. You know, some of us might love broccoli. Some of us might hate it. Some of us might love ice cream. Some of us might prefer chocolates or some, I have um, a loved one who does not like chocolate. She likes kind of fruitier tastes if she's going to have something sweet. And that's, that's always so interesting to me. And there's a lot of individuality there. But these preferences that we develop are absolutely influenced by our senses, among some other things, which we're going to talk about. But one of those main senses is our olfactory senses and our taste senses. And those two senses in particular help us cultivate kind of our palate, really, our preferences. And we can break down these senses into two parts. I like to think of them in terms of anticipation of food and then consumption of food. So let's think about olfaction first. So olfaction is, as for all intents and purposes, it's your sense of smell. So your olfactory senses and the act of olfaction is the process when we detect volatile molecules in our nose, the nasal cavity, and they basically activate receptors that then activate proteins that communicate to sensory neurons in our brain. And they're saying, here's what's here. Here's what I'm detecting. And the activation of these proteins basically sets off a sequence of chemical reactions that signal from the cells responding to an odorant and their metabolites back into the brain, various parts of the brain where that signal interacts with some other signals to ultimately create the interpretation of the chemical presence of the compounds. So when you smell broccoli, there's a whole process of olfaction where the molecules that broccoli emanates enter your nasal cavity and activate receptors in there that then talk to your brain and basically get interpreted. And we know that there's probably billions, if not trillions of different odorants that human beings can detect and discriminate, but the exact number is a bit unknown. Um, there's some different studies that show different numbers, but it's way, way up there. And the really interesting thing about odors is they can be very associative, but they're also very plastic or what that means is changeable. So the way we detect food 
for example, would be, a, we would have the olfaction senses, the act of olfaction, but then there, there's associations that interact with the chemical detection of the compound. So the connotation or a person's preference for different odors and foods can vary depending on their culture, the label that they have for that food and any learned associations, and they can change. I always joke with clients when they say things like, I just hate vegetables. I just hate the smell or I, I, I hate the taste of cooked vegetables or raw vegetables or whatever it may be. I always say, I, I promise you like double pinky promise you that that can change. And I think sometimes they look at me with very suspicious eyes, but they eventually buy in once they experience it, but the palate changes. So odors are associative and they're plastic. And the way we know this is actually a really interesting study by Rachel Hertz at, at Brown University. And she had a study called the influence of verbal labeling on the perception of odors, evidence for olfactory illusions. And her study showed that perceived odor what's called valence, which is basically a quality referring to the attractiveness or averseness of something. So an event, an object, or a situation. Um, it can also characterize emotions. But the perceived odor valence, so how good or bad essentially the odor is, shifted from positive to negative when the same odor mixture was labeled as either Parmesan cheese or vomit. And people were labeling them as positive or negative, depending on what the label given to them was. So they would get the label and then smell the odor. And they could totally freak somebody out, essentially, if they gave them Parmesan cheese and told them it, smelled, it was vomit. Then Parmesan cheese doesn't smell so good. And this was a kind of a hallmark study in many regards because they were really demonstrating that food labeling dramatically shifts perception. And what is perception? It's cultural. It's cultural to our region, time, and place, and definitely cultural to our home and family. That's why we know, for example, with children, we really want to offer them a lot in their developmental years. Um, we can change these as adults, but it's just a pain in the neck to have to do so when you're older and maybe have a little bit less accessible neuroplasticity. But when we give children many, many compounds where they can try things and, and try things in different ways and different flavor combinations, that exposure with no comment from the parent can be so effective so that they can discover them themselves. And that's also why we see so much research now on Children will eat more vegetables and they will, and when we follow them over years, they will eat more vegetables as adolescents and adults. When they were raised in a home where a parent was sitting with them at the table and also eating vegetables, because remember food labeling can shift perception. Doesn't it seem positive if your parent or mom or dad or a loved one is eating the vegetables and you're the child sitting there debating on whether or not you want to have any? So we can make these food experiences very gentle and very positive and make things very available. And that will totally change the palate. And we also see a, a lot of parents get very frustrated or they feel very stuck if they didn't do that early on. And then their child is in middle school or high school and just has an extremely limited diet. Um, I have a lot of clients who've been through that and they're so frustrated and they're mad at themselves. That they, they didn't do things differently when the child was younger. Um, and I always tell people, please 
you know, don't beat yourself up about this. There's so much you can do about it now. But if you do have the good fortune of learning this ahead of time, you can apply this lovely science to your dinner table if you have little ones and you can make things very available and demonstrate some gentle kind of positivity around it. Uh, and that is because odors and food labeling can be shifted around. And that is the component of eating that is more so the anticipation of food, the label around it, the perception around it, and then the smell, the olfaction of food is all deeply intertwined into what we're willing to eat and what we'll eat and how we'll eat. And really interestingly, these olfactory signals ultimately create, they'll activate approach or avoidance behavior in relation to potential food consumed. So for example, avoidance behavior would be if you were able to detect the hazard of rotting food, you wouldn't need it, right? Your olfaction can activate avoidance behaviors and say, whoa, no way, I'm not eating that. And you can imagine how much utility that has in the wild very, very sensitive smell to detecting, is that safe to eat? And also it can activate approach behaviors for like social communication. We might have someone that we love very much saying to us, oh, you've got to try this. This is so good. And we see the positive label. We smell some delicious smell and we're activating approach behavior with the anticipation of our food. And that is the way these olfactory signals are so deeply interwoven with other components of our nervous system and telling us avoid or approach. And that's happening at every single feeding opportunity. And wonderfully, olfaction and some of the related senses help us prepare to eat, which I'm going to get into in a little bit. And that preparation to eat really initiates consumption. And really importantly, odor exposure induces appetite specifically for the cued food. And this is one of the hard parts of our modern food culture, because when we smell something delicious, because we're just innocently walking down the street, what happens to our physiology? All of a sudden we're thinking, if I walk by a donut shop, oh my gosh, I didn't know it, but now I want a donut. And that is because the odor exposure is inducing appetite for the food that is emanating the odor. And we know that that's how, how that works. And it's a very strong relationship. And our modern food culture is cueing us to consume foods, particularly very pleasurable, energy dense foods that are rich in calories because they're rich in yummy things like fats and sugars. That's being cued to us literally all the time. You can't walk down the street almost in many places without that cue. And this is why our food culture at home matters so much. Because when I walk into my kitchen at the house, what's being cooked? What's available? What am I smelling? That environment is absolutely driving appetite and absolutely helping at least feed the activation of approach and avoidance behaviors with our food. So that olfaction can fuel all that food behavior, and especially also fuel how we taste things and then what we come to prefer. And that creates a lot of our food culture. For example, you might even have memories of when you were at your grandmother's house 
And I have a client, the clients coming to mind as I say this, she had a grandmother from Italy and so much of her food memories growing up were sitting under the table that her grandma was making pasta on. And she can smell the fresh egg yolk going into the pasta, the fresh flour. Then she can smell the pasta cooking. Then there might be marinara sauce simmering. And there's all these olfactory experiences that are deeply rooted now in her personal food culture and her bank of food memories. And now if you have that positive experience and then you visit a a wonderful Italian restaurant or somebody you love is making you Italian food for dinner, how positive and connected does that then feel? It makes perfect sense. And it relates back to literally millions of years ago, sharing food, using fire, trying to determine what's safe to eat, avoiding potential hazards, trusting someone, building a relationship. It's all in there. It's just so amazing. I I think it's wonderful. But I like to dive into that as well. I'm just touching on it today because that is at play in your food life. And I can promise you that. So then let's take all of those concepts and, and bundle them up and put them on the shelf. So we have just covered the development of our GI tract the way our olfactory senses and social um, relationships will fuel our food consumption and what we might prefer and how we want to engage with food. And we have this rich history of sharing and preparing food. But that was all done, particularly through all those years of evolution that predates us now. That was all done more so in a non-modern food environment. And now we're in a modern food environment where things are quite different, where that food cue is everywhere, where foods that we're we're smelling or being tempted to consume or being someone's trying to share with us are everywhere. So how do we regulate our appetite? And that's where we see a lot of mechanisms in the in the brain and central nervous system, as well as hormonal mechanisms that are here to regulate energy intake and how much food we need versus when we're full or what nutrients we need and so on and so forth. So now I want to shift into, we have our senses, we have our evolution, we have, we've acknowledged we have food culture. So what regulates our appetite? I want, it's so hard to even pare this down. Honestly, one of the hardest parts of um, even thinking about what to talk each episode, what to talk about each episode is that I have to control myself and not go on tangents. But what we're going to do now is look at the regulation of appetite in terms of this for the purposes of today's discussion, homeostatic versus hedonic eating. And what that brings into the picture is something called leptin. And leptin is a hormone that we have that has been shown to be a mediator of long-term regulation of energy balance. So this is a hormone secreted by fat cells and there's small amounts in the stomach and it circulates in the blood and it communicates to the brain, particularly communicates with our hypothalamus, a region of our brain. And leptin basically rises in the bloodstream when we have more body fat And leptin decreases in the bloodstream when we have less body fat. And that prevalence of leptin circulates and and talks to the hypothalamus and lets our brain know how much energy is on board. And you can imagine this might let our brain know 
we're gaining energy. This is good. We've, we've got some on board. Maybe now we have enough versus if we're losing fat tissue, our brain is going to start getting the signal of, Ooh, I've lost some energy. I have less energy on board. And it once, when it was discovered, there was a lot of excitement about leptin because there was a lot of belief that this is kind of the miracle. Of course, we always want a, a quick fix, right? This is going to be the miracle that regulates human feeding behavior in the modern world. Because in theory, this hormone should either increase or suppress food intake. But it didn't totally pan out that way. <laughs> so what we know is that the expression of leptin by fat cells is also influenced by feeding behavior. And studies have found that short-term or long-term overfeeding, so short-term usually is about 12 hours, long-term is two to eight weeks, short-term and long-term overfeeding results in an increase in adipocyte leptin expression, which is fat cell leptin expression. So adipocytes are fat cells. It increases adipocyte leptin expression and circulating leptin in healthy human subjects. So leptin increases when we overeat even short-term, if, if we eat a lot of food at once across 12 hours, we see leptin rise in the blood. If we eat a lot of food at once, but also consistently across two to eight weeks, we also see leptin increase in the blood. And when we look at this in rodents, we have had success in studies where if we give them leptin, more leptin tends to decrease appetite and therefore reduce body weight. Because if, you know, if a hypothalamus could talk, it could say, oh, I'm seeing more leptin. I have plenty of energy on board. I don't need to keep eating. Whereas decreasing circulating levels of leptin tended to increase appetite and therefore increase body weight. Because if, again, if a hypothalamus could talk, it would say, oh, I'm seeing more left. I'm seeing less leptin, excuse me, I'm seeing less leptin. Uh-oh, I'm losing energy. Let me increase my appetite and get some more energy stored. That worked relatively clearly in many rodent studies. And this is why we have to be so careful of rodent studies versus human studies rodent studies are used so often in nutrition and people will cite studies in mice and then say it happens in humans. But here's why we really want to be cautious of that. Leptin research is a perfect example. We tried to replicate this in humans and it did not work. <laughs> the rodent data did not cross over and map out onto human physiology with leptin. So what it's hard to, it's actually, it's a big story. It's a big physiologic story, but basically leptin does not seem to have this clean map of action in humans because humans can become leptin resistant and the hedonic foods or the way we're overfeeding can actually overcome the leptin regulatory effects. So let's go back into our bloodstream. We have circulating levels of leptin and they're communicating to our hypothalamus. Let's say we are overfeeding and we're eating particularly delicious foods. So they're very, I classify hedonic foods as ones that are very high in sugar and fats and calories typically. And they also typically are not filling. So we know, for example, protein and fiber are very, very filling. They make us feel full. They literally stretch our stomach. They make us feel satisfied at the end of meals. 
Hedonic foods don't do that as much. A lot of people would get full on a bowl of chicken and broccoli and would not get full on a bowl of ice cream, right? So when I'm talking about hedonic foods, I'm referring to these very pleasurable foods that are low in nutritional value, very rich in calories though. And what we see is, so leptin is circulating and let's say I'm overfeeding on hedonic foods and my leptin levels theoretically should be rising and they typically do. But that rising level of leptin in the blood, which is now supposed to be talking to my hypothalamus, should theoretically then say, my hypothalamus should say, I've been putting on energy stores in my, in my fat cells. I don't need any more ice cream. Ice cream wins though. And what can happen, it's really kind of more in a chronic setting. What can happen is these hedonic foods have some mechanism in the brain where they overplay in a, in a way that leptin can't successfully communicate with the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus either A, can be leptin resistant. So leptin is aiming to bind and the hypothalamus isn't registering. So it, we're not gonna feel full. We're not gonna get the decrease in appetite even though we should. But leptin also can, its mechanisms can be overrun by pleasure signals through the action of dopamine in the brain. And chronic consumption of hyperpalatable foods or hedonic foods, so very, very delicious, but low in nutritional value and very high in calories, chronic consumption of hyperpalatable hedonic foods is a behavior that can become so sustained and chronic because the alteration in the brain reward systems, because dopamine is disrupting other signals and it's hindering leptin function. And interestingly, we have, there, we, we have two classes of appetite hormones that we call orexigenic and anorexigenic. I lightly glossed on these in our last episode, but they're basically signals that either promote consumption or decrease consumption. And leptin, higher levels of leptin should empower for all intents and purposes, anorexigenic hormonal signals. So we see a slight softening of the appetite. The appetite just decreases that little bit because we have adequate energy. Leptin should be able to do that. But when dopamine is on board, because so much pleasureful food is being consumed, leptin can't communicate and then exert those effects. So the appetite regulatory mechanisms are dampened. This is why the rodent data didn't cross over to human studies. And there's a lot more neurobiology to this, but I'm going to stop here because I want this to be very actionable to you right now. I want it to click. The rodent data did not transfer or translate to human studies for this reason, because pleasure is on board. Very hyperpalatable foods are on board and it changes our regulation of appetite. And we have to think about what does that mean for us in the modern world? Because imagine us in the wild and I, you, can, you can see here my bias. I always go back to natural systems and evolution and the way our biology is, is designed to operate because I think I feel this is my bias. I can be honest about it. I feel we have to work symbiotically with our physiology. 
So what does that mean? It means we need to know our, our natural physiology. And when we think about the way we developed in the wild, in a sense, out of this modern food culture, we were walking so many miles per day and we would find something like, say, berries or some starchy tubers or some protein. And those foods are separate, right? And I have my olfactory signals and my taste receptors on my tongue to let me know, for example, that the berries are safe because they're sweet and they smell fresh. And maybe just to put a cherry on top, I'm sharing it with someone that I, I love in my tribe, maybe my, my partner for, for some offspring that I have. This is positive. This is safe. This is safe calories. Over many millions of years of that, we develop a preference for sweet foods. And if we can find fat in the wild, we love that because it's calorie dense. And what do you need in the wild when you're moving that many miles per day? You definitely need calories. And leptin here can act because we are moving so much, which we know helps our hormones regulate themselves. And we are eating these foods separately. There's some fat here. There's some protein, maybe hours or even days later. Then there might be something sweet, like a, a natural carbohydrate, like a vegetable or a fruit, maybe hours later. That is not hedonic food, right? Whale blubber and a strawberry <laughs> is not going to be able to compete with Cherry Garcia from Ben and Jerry's. So leptin can act because all the pieces were in place for our physiology to unravel as it should. But when we take that physiology and we put it in a modern food environment where there's freezer fulls of very sweet, calorific, sugar-rich, and fatty foods, our pleasure centers are just lighting up, non-scientific term, I'm just gonna use that though. Our pleasure centers are activated, our approach behaviors are activated, and then our dopamine signaling pathways are activated because it's so delicious. It's really kind of offering all that reward that we seek so deeply, literally to our core. And then leptin is out of play in some of these settings. Not always. Uh, leptin still works. I don't mean to suggest it doesn't, but I want to show that in the chronic overfeeding setting with these very hedonic foods, we are not successfully able to homeostatically regulate our appetite the way we are designed to do so. Why do I stress that so much? And why did I just take the time to go through that? Because I have never had a client say to me, I don't understand why I don't have more discipline. And I'm here to say, this is not a discipline issue. First of all, we need to reframe discipline entirely, which we're going to talk about a separate day. Second of all, your physiology is not receiving all of the inputs it's designed to receive. That is, a, that's an issue. But that's not an issue of you just need more willpower. That's an issue of we're not even playing the right game. You're not even in the right setting. Your body doesn't even, it's not even getting what it understands. That's the way I view these factors. 
regulation of appetite is physiology. And certainly behavior and things of that nature influence physiology. But I'm kind of interested more so not in just telling someone to try harder. I'd like to make the physiology work for them. I hope you see where I'm going with that. So we have our hormones at play. We talked about leptin. We talked about taste, development of the palate, sense of smell, sharing. And I'm also just going to add, because I'd be so remiss not to, one more factor in regulation of appetite, which is movement. And movement has been shown to help regulate how much food a human being eats. And this is why we do care about baseline movement, like daily step counts, cardiorespiratory fitness. We definitely care about how much muscle somebody has on board because movement regulates appetite in many regards. Remember I mentioned, imagine we're in the wild and we find some fat, then hours later we find some protein, then hours later we maybe find a strawberry or some carbohydrate or something of that nature. Well, keep in mind during that 24 hour cycle for much of our evolution, we were moving that whole time. We might have had to walk miles at times to find food, days without food, but being physically active. So we can't underestimate just how much movement is a part of our physiology story versus how little movement we're getting in the modern world, which to me is no surprise why we have so much consistent, really fantastic data demonstrating that physical activity promotes adherence to lifestyle changes. I mean, I love getting the hard data on that. And we say, yep, strong findings in every single one of these studies, strong findings, strong findings, strong findings. But I can't help but think, of course there's strong findings. We're doing what we're designed to do. And that is where I love to emphasize our story as a, as a species and the way we're designed to function. And I, I love this one study. There's a lot of studies on looking at steps, investigating steps per day and, and food intake and body weight changes and things like that. But there's this one study that I find quite interesting because I like the way it related to food intake. And this is a study by Shook that was conducted in 2015. Uh, the, the lead author's name is, last name is Shook. And they were assessing calculated energy intake and physical activity, as well as food reporting. And without going through all the results, I'll give you the highlight. They basically found that the individuals in the study with this, with the lowest levels of physical activity experienced the largest gains in fat mass of all participants, but also had the lowest reported food intake, which then we have to say, are all of these lovely people lying or is there something going on here? And in this paper, the author's hypothesized that there's an uncoupling mechanism in the brain and in homeostatic control of appetite, where under a certain threshold of movement, which I'll tell you what it was in a second, under that threshold of movement, the nervous system is unable to adequately report 
how much food it's consuming. And they're accidentally, essentially, overeating chronically. And they're unaware of it. Okay, so let's go in reverse. What does that mean? They have no idea how much they're eating. That's why in these studies, there's, there's often this threshold where it looks like a lot of people are lying. And in nutrition studies, we do have a hurdle of underreporting. Some, some nutrition studies find that participants underreport their own food intake by up to 60%. That means then less than half the day is reported, which is astounding. I mean, how can, how can you know what someone's eating or help them with their food, for example, if you don't know what they're eating? It's a big hurdle. But this study, I thought, did a very elegant job of discriminating where this uncoupling occurred. And what they found is that when someone walked less than 7,100 steps per day, they were unable to accurately report their food intake and they gained fat mass. So there was an uncoupling of the regulatory mechanisms of the appetite. And thankfully, we always hear 10,000 steps per day when we think about daily step counts. And of course, more, more is fantastic. But I love to find these numbers that are more meaningful and accurate and not arbitrary. Because isn't it so nice to know, okay, maybe on a lot of my weekdays, I do have a hard time hitting 10,000 steps, but I could hit 7,100, right? And I like finding those little um, tricks for my clients because let's be realistic and let's make this sustainable, but let's work with your physiology. I think we have to help a body regulate itself. I always use the word regulation. If you follow me on social media, I'm sure you've seen it many times before. I use the word regulation because we have to help our body regulate itself. We have to help our physiology regulate itself because it works. Because the other groups in this study that were over that threshold of movement were able to accurate, more accurately report their food intake and they were weight stable. So nothing was even done to any of the group's food intake. They just had to report it. And then that was assessed in relation to changes in their anthropometric measurements, like their waist circumference and their body weight and their body fat percentage. So nothing was even done to their food. And the food and the group that was moving under 7,100 steps per day was reporting an impossibly low amount of food intake and gaining fat mass. So they were reporting so little food that it was impossible for them to have gained the weight they gained if they really were eating that amount of reported food. So there was like a mathematical impossibility that led the researchers to realize there was this under-reporting problem that appeared by accident. They weren't even looking for that in the study. So pretty awesome. So I'm also going to offer, we only focused on one hormone when we talked about leptin, but I just want to show these two key players of homeostatic regulation of appetite because they relate to our food culture. What does my health life look like? Am I walking enough? Am I cooking food at home? What smells am I smelling? How was I raised? Remember, we even used that term food story in our last episode. This all goes together. I hope you're, you're starting to feel that. So now let's, we have this really nice basis now of our physiology. Hopefully that all made sense and you're connecting with the big picture ideas. 
And we have this sense of the development of food culture on the macro scale. And then fast forward millions of years, we're in the modern world now, food is everywhere for, for many of us. And we have very little movement. And like we talked about last time, food is also productized. It's delicious. There's a lot of it. It's based in an agricultural ecosystem that's very founded and steeped in the productization of staple crops. And here we are in 2022. And that's what our food culture in our country looks like if you're here in the US. And so that's our macro scale. And the last bit that I want to add to our macro scale is we also here have diets on our food culture at a macro level. So we have all this food and then we're told we're not supposed to eat it. So food culture, meat, diet culture. Unfortunately, you two are neighbors right now. We have this commercialized food culture that already poses so many hurdles to our nutritional intake. We're more separated from our food. Everything is really productized. Everything is really fast. And then we have all these diets. So then we're supposed to avoid all this delicious food that we're surrounded by, probably surrounded by at home, surrounded by when we go out with friends, surrounded by when we go out to restaurants. But then we're on a diet where we might be trying to count our calories or remove um, animal foods or remove, remove carbohydrates or remove fats. And we have these restrictions. And this is why the diets are unsustainable when the restrictions are so out of alignment that an individual can't maintain them in their current ecosystem. So this is where I want to bring the concept of food culture home to you now. How you were raised, which we'll talk about in a second, undoubtedly gave birth to the food culture that you have. And you're also steeped in the geographic food culture of wherever you live. And you're also steeped in the national and modern food culture of wherever you live. So if you're here in the U.S., you are familiar with all these diets that I mention often. We might look at paleo, keto, vegan, whole 30, um, carnivore, low carb, high carb. All of those are present. We also have all the products like Nutrisystems and Beachbody and Jenny Craig and food replacement and shake replacement, ideal protein, all the products. And then there's all the food and it's pizza night and it's Chinese food and it's takeout and it's Uber Eats and it's Grubhub. I had a client who one time she did make me laugh because she was laughing when she said it, but she said, if you took out a frying pan in my home, someone would look at you and say, oh, is company coming? because they do not cook at home. Every meal was Uber Eats or Grubhub delivered to their house. And they, they live in a very nice area with lots of restaurants around and they were literally getting brought meals three times a day, most days of the week. That is a, a component of modern food culture for many of us. So I want you to have this framework of understanding here I am in this land of all this food and then all these diets telling me I'm not supposed to eat this food. And then we might embark on a diet that becomes unsustainable because the restrictions or the constraints of the given diet are so out of alignment with the way our life looks that I just can't maintain them. And this is where a lot of people come to me after doing one of these maybe 10 to 30 times even. 
and they start to say, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. This is why we even have the term yo-yo dieting. And I want to offer you, this is why food culture is so important, because I want you to re- think of this. Think of this term. If, if you get anything out of today's episode, please think of this term. I, it's called the over-attribution error. And I want you to know that term because the over-attribution error is the mechanism, and this is well-researched in in behavioral studies, the over-attribution error is the error that states that we would be making an error if we assume that Erin's behavior, we'll, we'll be specific, we'll make it about food, Erin's behavior is completely up to Erin when it comes to her food. That is an over-attribution error because we're over-attributing my decision-making to my own control. And we actually are very concerned about that in, in some food studies, but especially in more so behavioral psychology. That's an error because we know environment drives behavior. So if you take me and you put me at a nutrition conference and say I'm at a nutrition conference all day and there wasn't any food at the hotel and I was rushing and I just flew to the conference and I ran in and I was late and I never got to eat and I'm in the conference all day, I'm sitting all day and all of a sudden it's seven o'clock at night and they bring out pizzas for everybody available at the conference. And I just have a slice of pizza. Is that Erin determining she really wants pizza or did her environment just determine she can have pizza? To say in that example that Erin just really wanted pizza would probably be an over-attribution error. It was Erin didn't eat all day. Erin didn't plan ahead. Erin was running late. Erin wasn't home. She didn't have any of her normal foods around. She didn't prep. She didn't stop where she could get something. She blah, 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 goes on and on. That would be an over-attribution error to say, Erin ate pizza because Erin just really wanted pizza. And so what we want to think about with our food culture is what's the culture, definitely, as I've mentioned, that I'm designed to exist with. That's why we look at our evolution. And then what's the culture of my country, region, geography, And then let's look at now the culture, the food culture of your home, because this is where your environment is. This is where, for many of us, breakfast, lunch, and dinner is consumed. Or perhaps my food culture is I'm gone all day and I don't, I'm not home and eating until dinner. So how can I handle my personal food culture at breakfast, lunch, and snacks, for example? Because we really, really care about our environment because we don't want to make an over-attribution error. So let's look at food culture in the home. For the sake of our discussion today, because I can't keep you here all day, even though I'd love to, I'm going to divide food culture concepts into a couple different buckets so that we can assess them just a bit, but these are not exhaustive. So I just want to be clear. I'm just, I'm just going to lay out a couple concepts so you can get started um, thinking about this, but these are not an exhaustive list. So let's think about the food cultures in our home. And here's where I would start. How oriented is the food consumption in my home versus how disoriented is the food consumption in my home? And here's what I mean by that. When I am well oriented, I know where I am. 
I know what I'd like to have if I'm talking about food. I know where it's coming from. I know what's in the cabinet. I know what's in the fridge. I can forecast. I really know where I am. I'm well-oriented. I would describe a well-oriented food culture as one where people kind of know where they are. They know what they're doing. When it comes to food, we tend to, it's not uncommon, we tend to come from a very disoriented home. We, many, many, many of my clients and many of us were, were raised in homes where the food culture was disoriented. It was, oh, I don't know what's in the fridge. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want for dinner? The bread has mold on it. I didn't grocery shop this week. I'm just so busy. Maybe you have a parent who's so stressed out, or maybe you had a parent. It's not unusual to have a parent who's not very high functioning, or maybe they're suffering with their own pain. Maybe I've had many clients where their parent was an alcoholic, for example, or was working and gone all day. And there wasn't a oriented food culture because an adult in the home or both adults or any primary caregivers were impaired or stressed or suffering from their own pain and traumas or out of the home completely. Or you might have had a parent who just was really disoriented with food because they never learned how to use food. That's not an uncommon one. It's quite common. So orientation. I know where I am. I know what I could have. I have a plan. The next one I'd look at is how dismissive or avoidant is the food consumption? Are people hiding food? Were people eating food in separate parts of the home growing up? Would you find food in your parents' car tucked under the seat? Would everyone get some food and just go back to their TV in their bedroom and, and not talk to one another? I had a lot of, I have a lot of clients who the food would be kind of packaged processed food of some sort. Um, one client in particular often ate tortilla chips with melted cheese on top from the microwave. And then he'd bring them back to his room and with the TV and his parents kind of did the same thing. Everybody just ate separately. It was pretty avoidant. There was no connection. There was no um, community time at, at meals. There was a lot of screens we might label that as a little bit more avoidant. And we also might have seen an adult or someone we modeled our behavior after who was hiding food or using food to cope with painful emotions. We might have witnessed a parent who was a stress eater or an emotional eater. So that's another big one. So we have orientation and then dismissive or avoidant. Then the next one I would say is how regulated is the food consumption in relation to the body and taste specifically? If you came from a home where you weren't allowed to leave the table until you cleared your plate, even if it wasn't intentional, I mean, a lot of parents did this with the best of intentions, but that actually can affect the way we're able to sense and honor fullness cues, for example. So my appetite regulatory mechanisms should include the occurrence of I'm feeling full, I'm ready to cease eating. We may have grown up in a home where everybody ate past fullness. That's not unusual for me to have a client who talks about that. We all ate until the buttons were about to fly off our pants, I've been told by many. 
or my parents would not let us leave until we cleared our plate. Even if I said, I don't have any more room, I'm so full, their parent would still say, you gotta clear your plate, then you can leave the table. Or I've, I've had clients where the food is put out in the serving platters on the table and there's huge things of mashed potatoes or mac and cheese or whatever it was for dinner. And it was kind of the running joke, but very much the culture to not leave any scraps on the serving platter. So it could, might be like, oh, there's still a few scoops left. Someone's got to finish these. And everybody starts scooping more, but everybody's full. Or we could see the opposite. I've had clients where there was a parent who was always dieting. And that parent might be saying at the table, oh, I, I'm not going to eat that. I am i don't want to eat till I'm full. I'm just going to have a little bit of this. Or they might even comment like, wow, child, you're eating a lot of carbs. So there's not eating until complete fullness. So we're ignoring hunger cues. Either way, we're playing on the same field of regulation. And that is not a well-regulated food consumption environment because we're not honoring the body. I've even had um, clients talk often about they may have had a parent or a sibling or even themselves eating food and saying things like, I don't even know why I'm eating this. I don't really like this. Again, we're not honoring taste. That happens all the time. I can't even tell you how many clients I've had where once we do this work together and we work through a lot of this, they start realizing they're eating foods they don't even like. So that is the regulation of food consumption. That's number three. Then I have to throw in number four, which is how connected is the social framework around my food? And even how connected do I feel to my food? Do I know where this came from? Did I grow up in a home where we sat at the table and had a nice dinner together? Because we know, I'll, I'll save this for another day, but we know that we co-regulate our nervous systems. If we're all sitting around the table, helping the others regulate themselves, we're enjoying a meal together, we're socially and emotionally connected, that helps our nervous system be more parasympathetic which we'll talk about another day, but that's basically the ability for the nervous system to come down and get into more of a recovery and restful mode, which is the opposite of activation. If you had a very stressful family environment, it would be very activating. You'd be more, we'd be more looking at the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system that alters our ability to digest food because we need to get blood out of muscles and into the GI tract. When we're activated, we send blood into muscles. When we're more parasympathetic, we send blood into the GI so that we can digest food. If we're very activated and stressed around our family members, as many people are, that can really hinder the ability to enjoy food. It can hinder the ability to feel our bodies and digest properly and regulate the meal. There's a, that's a big one. I'll, I'll stop there. I'll make myself stop. There's so much there. And then the last point that I'll say, point five, is to check in on our food culture. How nourishing is the food itself? Was I raised in a home where food was often restaurant food and Grubhub and delivery or unhealthy foods or a lot of hedonic foods versus were vegetables available? Did I see a caregiver eating vegetables? Did I witness um, 
cooking and food preparation? Did we connect about how to make food together? Did we make healthy meals together? Did I learn how to cook? So overall, was, was my food pattern nourishing? Did I develop a nice wide array of taste preferences? Do I have a flexible palate or am I a really picky eater? I've had a lot of clients as adults identify as very picky eaters and then talk about how little food was consumed with their parents and that the food often was not particularly nourishing or diverse in flavors and textures. So their palate literally just didn't get exposed. So to recap, how oriented is the food consumption? How avoidant or dismissive is the food consumption? How regulated is the food consumption in terms of honoring the body and taste? How connected is the social framework around it? And how nourishing was the food itself? And that is some components of the food cultures in the homes that we may have been raised in. And it's also components of the food culture we're in at this very moment. You could look at your own family and household and look at some of these factors and determine what's going on there. And that can help you understand if you layer that with all the science and evolution that we've talked about today, that can help you understand your nutrition on a more detailed and personal level so that you're understanding your environment and what might be fueling a lot of your food behavior. And that food culture also can include things like people dieting chronically around us, or maybe dieting chronically now, or people encouraging you to eat a certain way, either in the past or now, and how food and bodies are talked about. There's so many fascinating quotes. I'll have clients share things like, you know, my dad always said, of course, it's delicious and that's why it'll kill you. So yummy food always seems dangerous, but it's what all they wanted to eat. Or I've had clients where when they try to eat healthier, they have a romantic partner who doesn't want them to because now they're not joining in the more pleasurable foods with the romantic partner. So I've seen a lot of romantic partners or family members, unfortunately, kind of maybe accidentally or not, um, curtail someone's health journey because they don't want them to change. Or we may have had a parent say, oh, I really shouldn't eat this, but I can't stop. Or we may have often had a parent say, I can't eat that. I'm on my diet. Either way, any of those examples, how the food was discussed and how bodies were discussed, ultimately influenced our food culture that we kind of inherit, really. And then we can look at did I bring that food culture into adulthood? Is that the food culture that I have now? Is that the food culture that I have with my family? If, if I'm a parent, for example, or maybe you're in your twenties and you don't have a family yet. And you're thinking, well, what's the food culture I want to have when I have a family? How do I want to talk about food? Or maybe even let's, let's have a short-term goal. What's the food culture I want to develop for myself right now, regardless of who else is in it with me? And that's something that I like to focus on with my clients. And that's where we will wrap up today. I want you to know that you can build your own food culture and you can make it a food culture that serves you more than it ever has. And this food culture component is driving our behavior, driving our food intake. It's driving how we feel around food. 
and it's driving the state of our bodies. And it also is driving us insane in many cases because we are at a tug of war between the delicious food culture that we are a part of and the diet culture that's also acting on us. So this is something that we unsuccessfully toggle in between. And here's what, what I think. And I see this in my clients, so I feel strongly because I do get to see it. We can insulate ourselves from an unhealthy modern food culture and diet culture by building our own personal food culture. And that can be gentle things like, I like having a lot of flexibility in my diet, but I don't keep a lot of desserts, for example, laying around the house. Maybe your food culture involves a little meal prep. Maybe you love to bake a big batch of vegetables at the beginning of the week. Maybe you like to have carrots and cucumbers in the fridge ready to go for snacks. Maybe you only like to eat out once a week or twice a week, or maybe you eat out every day for lunch, whatever it is, it's up to you. You can decide what you want your food culture to look like. And that way you are not dieting. You have successfully created a healthy lifestyle because you redesigned and created your own food culture in a way that it should ideally serve your goals. So you moving food around and how you consume it and what you consume can, can all be changed and then rebuilding your relationship with food in your body and then your habits, patterns, rituals, and beliefs. And then you will have your personal food culture. And that is really fun to create. It's, it's work. That's the work that I do with a lot of my clients but it's a beautiful process with a lot of opportunity. So I hope that today you got the sense that, again, this biopsychosocial framework is at play in all of our food intake. And you have these amazing physiologic mechanisms driving a lot of your food experiences and intake. You, your body has this rich evolutionary history that's driving your food intake and taste preferences. And then you have here today, the food culture that you grew up in and the food culture that you're in now, and all of them are driving your food intake and the state of your health. So I hope today you can take that framework and start applying that. It's much more complex. It's much more nuanced, but it also offers you a way to divorce this concept that you simply just need more willpower or you need a new meal plan. That is why willpower and meal plans don't work. That's why in a lot of research, we see dieting as a predictor of weight gain and food stress. Because what we need to do is create a food culture that serves our body, our goals, our mind, and what we want out of life, instead of just simply adopting another diet. So today's episode is about helping you learn that the pen is in your hand and you can start thinking about what do I want my food life to look like and how can I start building my food culture? If you start having some interesting ideas about this, I would love to hear from you. This is one of my favorite topics. So please post on Instagram, 
if you want to shoot me a message or leave it in the comments on my next post when this podcast comes out, please do comment. I would love to hear how you're doing this Um, because when you share how you're doing it, you can also help other people do it. You can be a health influencer, uh, a really good influencer though, in a very healthy sense, not necessarily in the social media sense, but you can help change our modern food culture here in the US, for example, into a healthier one by building your own. And I really, really want to hear about it. So please do comment. I'm dying to know. And just like the last episode in this show's show notes, there will be links to some resources that can help you conduct an analysis on your food relationship. So please be aware that those will be up. I definitely encourage you to give them a try. And we also have a small group opening up that this is a little passion project of mine, but we are going to specifically focus on rewriting your food story. And the, the nutrition group is going to be all based around that idea. And every workshop and lecture each week and meeting with live Q&A and discussion will be built around that concept. And that the registration for that group is opening January 17th. So the week of January 17th, you'll see that go live with the option to register. So if this topic is of interest to you and you really want to dive in and see what, how this is going on in your health, I'd love to have you in the group. Um, please feel free to ask any questions. Um, you can always email me at erin at erinmurraywellness.com or you can leave a comment on Instagram. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please subscribe on Apple and Spotify and leave the show ratings, comments, and reviews. Please don't hesitate to ask questions, share the show with family and friends, or request topics for episodes. We appreciate your support and your drive to bring uncommon living to your life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll talk to you soon.